God, may your spirit be present in our hearts and minds as we explore this scripture together and what you might be leading us to through its wisdom. We pray these things in your name, our creator, our redeemer, and the spirit among us. Amen. So I've been thinking a lot about the season of fall. Summer has always been my very favorite season because I like to be warm and I also like to hike a lot. I don't like winter one bit. I get way too cold. And so fall, the season that turns into winter, I don't like it a lot. And I think fall has my heart right now, perhaps, not for what it feels like, but for what it means, what it represents. I've spent some time hiking these past few Septembers and Octobers, and the fall foliage makes me gasp aloud. It is so beautiful. I love the green trees in the summer, but when the weather turns and the high elevations start to get cold, the leaves and some of the needles turn yellow, orange, and red, and it looks like the land is on fire, and it makes me think of the natural cycle of things. In the words of the Lion King, this is the circle of life. Leaves sprout in the spring, they begin as buds and blossom into that bright new green, and then they flourish through the summer, becoming bigger and darker, making the land look lush. Then in the fall, they reach the end of their lives and they turn colors, becoming even more beautiful as they die, only to be resurrected at the end of winter when the weather gets warm again, resurrected because they are still part of the tree which has been alive this whole time sitting quiet and waiting winter out. This is the natural cycle of things. And the story in 2 Kings that we read this morning of King Josiah, it's all about a fall stage in the life of Israel and Judah, I think. And let me set the stage here. It's sometime around 640 BC. Much has happened that feels like fall, like death. Josiah, he's the king in Judah, and he's considered very righteous, but the people of Israel were in exile all over the land. There was violence, and there was rebellion, famine, and war, and Judah had seen some pretty awful leadership in years past. Manasseh was king for a bit before Josiah and distracted the people from God with idol worship. He even sacrificed his own son in cult practices. This was not a good guy. The text says that he shed much innocent blood in his time as king, and his son Ammon was not much better. And it was a time of transition, too. After all that they'd seen, you might not be surprised to hear that many were feeling a little lost in Israel and in Judah. Some were losing their faith, and many were desperate to feel proud of their leadership, to trust those in power over them. Many felt their traditions were dying and there was nothing they could do to salvage them and feel at home again. And so, as was often the case in that brutal time, in order to make things right, the people rise up against the wicked king Ammon and they assassinate him and they put Ammon's son in his place as king. And Josiah, his son, he begins ruling the people of Judah at the tender age of eight. And I don't know about you, but I certainly was not ready to rule a country at age eight. Maybe some eight-year-olds in this congregation would be up for the task, but myself? No, when I was eight, I was playing with Barbie dolls and loving it. 
And when I was eight, my Uncle Phil got video evidence that I wouldn't be a good monarch. He filmed my sister, Anita, and I playing with our Barbie dolls, my sister with her Barbies in our bright pink Barbie convertible car, and me with my Barbies without a Barbie car and eyeing my sister so jealously. And the camera catches me pretending there's something off in the distance, pointing and saying, look! And my sister, unassumingly looking to the side, she was so sweet and trusting. And she looks in that direction, and I deviously take her Barbies out of the convertible, put my Barbies in it, and drive off while my sister cries. I wouldn't have made a good monarch at age eight. And maybe Josiah wouldn't on his own, but thankfully Josiah has a contingent of advisors that help him out as he grows up. And in the story in 2 Kings, it goes a little like this. When Josiah turns 18, he noticed that the temple where he sometimes worshipped God, it was looking a little worse for the wear. He had walked through the halls of the temple. He'd seen the windows full of cobwebs and the stones which make the outer walls that were chipped and crumbling in places, leaving dust trails around the perimeter. Maybe he had felt that cloud of dust rise up when he entered the holy place, had seen the smudged gold on the walls and seen the cedar floor which had seen better days. And I imagine the corners of the great hall were littered with piles of furniture and articles used in worship that were so dirty that they were barely distinguishable. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, repairs had been happening for a few years and through the reign of many kings, but the temple was still in disrepair. Perhaps this was due to a lack of money and vision, and Josiah decides to take up an offering from his people, and he gives that to the high priest Hilkiah to distribute fairly among the workers to start up the work of repairing the building again. <clears throat> and here the story gets very interesting. Hilkiah the high priest, he's working in the temple, and maybe as he goes to clean out the dark recesses of the place, he finds something, an ancient book, Scholars say it's probably something out of Deuteronomy. And then he brings it to Josiah, this child king. Some scholars wonder if Hilkiah discovered this book innocently or if he and others orchestrated this finding in order to manipulate the king in a good way to help their people return to God in their actions. We don't fully know exactly what happened here. There seems to be no way a priest would simply lose something that precious as the book of the law. But however it happened, the story goes that Hilkiah brings the book to Josiah, and as Josiah hears the words of the Lord, he cries aloud and he tears his clothes. He's distressed because he knows that these words mean something, and he consults the godly prophetess, Huldah, who confirms what he already knows. These words in this book were sacred. And the people of Israel, they had not been following them. And then the text tells us that he hears that if the people of God don't return back to God, God will send God's wrath upon them. And fun fact about this, in studying this week, I learned that the Hebrew word for wrath in this context, it is gendered as female, it says that the great fury of Yahweh, she is kindled against us. And I love this. In a world where women are often told that their anger makes them annoying or strident or unchristian or any other number of names and words, the wrath of God is holy, strong, and female and says enough is enough. 
When children are being sacrificed, when violence is happening, the mama bear in God is kindled and will not be turned away. And here in 2 Kings, God's anger, she is kindled. And Josiah takes this seriously. He knew that like leaves in fall, something had to die, perhaps. In chapter 3, he acts immediately. He brings everyone in Judah together, all his people, the whole congregation, if you will, and they meet at the temple. And in the midst of the construction, dust, and workers' tools, Josiah reads the book that was found. And once he reads it, the Hebrew says that they cut a covenant. I learned that this means that they followed an ancient tradition, and this is where things get a little bloody, where a leader would take animals, cut them down the middle, and place them on either side of a valley where the blood would run down to the center. And then Josiah and the people would stand in the blood, vowing that if they did not follow through on their end of the vow, God would be in the right to cut them like these animals too. Did I mention this was a brutal time? This is a wild and serious promise. So Josiah and the people, they cut the covenant, and they stood the covenant there in the blood. And then the child king, he reads the words of the book of the law out loud and commits himself to following them, to going back, to returning to what him and his people were originally called to, to letting the actions that weren't of God die so that something better could be resurrected. And I think the first invitation of our text, as we read it this morning, is for us to do something similar, to be humble and turn inward, to take an honest look at ourselves when we learn that we have been off course from where God would have us. We can ask, what does it look like for us as individuals to turn inward with humility, examine what it is in us that isn't of God, and humbly do the work with God to root it out with grace and forgiveness? This is the first invitation. And perhaps more in line with our text this morning, sometimes we are off course, not just as individuals, but as communities. We as a church, we've had a similar season in some ways to that of Israel and Judah, perhaps. We've been through a lot, haven't we? Some of our years have been hard. Attendees have come and gone. We've lost dear ones. We've changed many things in our worship. Leaders have come and gone. We've hurt. We've moved past. We've gathered around and supported each other. But much has happened. Much is still happening. And maybe we as a church community can do this turning inward in this time of transition, just like Judah did. Maybe we can humbly take stock and examine where we are. What does it mean for us to rediscover the word of God in this time? to realize the ways that we have lost sight of the truth, as we all do at different times and places. Perhaps like Judah under Josiah, we can regroup, return to the text and to what God has called us to all along, to love God and to love our neighbor, just like Sonia talked about this morning. Perhaps the church in the United States especially has gotten focused on money and wealth and numbers for attendance, but that isn't the invitation that God gives the church in Scripture, is it? After all, Jesus the King comes in a manger without drums and on a donkey and dies for us. Maybe while we aren't the whole American church, we as one gathering body, we can return to the invitation set in Scripture the humble example of Jesus. 
God invites God's people to humility, to selfless giving, to radical generosity, taking risks and abundantly sacrificing for the good of the world. And we have been striving for this in so many good ways. We've been seeking ways we can serve our neighborhood for years under the leadership of Pastor Paul. We've been working to gather in small groups recently to prayerfully consider ways our church can move forward with a new pastor. This is beautiful. This is good work. And perhaps like Josiah, God continues to call us into further faithfulness. What could God be inviting us to return to now? What needs to die so that something can be resurrected into something better? Times were changing in Josiah's time. People were experiencing unrest and changing religious landscape. And times are changing here too in our country and in our city. People don't trust churches so much and for good reason. People aren't so sure about this whole faith thing and our country is going through tumultuous times. So what is our response? Our response is to cut a covenant ourselves Maybe not physically in the same way. But to cut a covenant ourselves and move forward with continued faithfulness and courage. We have no reason to fear what comes. Certain things that aren't of God might die in how we do church, in what we focus on, in how we live out our mission and call. But the church itself, the community of people who love God and serve God, this will not die. We are connected to the tree, which is Christ. Our whole story from beginning to end, is resurrection. Maybe this text is calling us to return and imagine what what God is calling us to next. The constant reforming to be more like Jesus is an everyday work, after all. And we don't just turn inward. We take courage and put into action the covenant that we have cut. And Josiah, he did this too. He didn't just say the words, but he acted. However, this is where things get very complicated in our story. Josiah cuts this covenant with the people, but then he does some very questionable things and some downright wrong things. In chapter 23, we read that Josiah does reform as promised, He tears down the sites of pagan sex rituals and he destroys the altars where priests would offer up child sacrifices. He ruins the places where men and women were being sold into prostitution and makes it so that they won't be sold again. He destroys places of violence and calls the people to worship the Lord of love and health and wholeness instead. But... At the very end of the chapter, and in some in, in some in the conflicting accounts of his reign in Second Chronicles, the same story is there, but it's told quite differently. Josiah also utterly destroys people's lives and their ways of worship. He kills everything considered un-Israelite, even if they weren't wrong, just different. Many commentaries suggest that he went north to the exiled Israelites who worship the same God, and he forces them to abandon their traditions and take up his own because he thought it was best. And in his fear of losing Israel and Judah as he and his people know it, he kills and suppresses all that is different. His anxiety, it gets turned into nationalism. He reforms wrongs through suppression, and everyone knows that that doesn't work. He didn't help people change their hearts. And finally, Josiah kills a bunch of priests from other religions. He murders them. 
He kills them on the altars on which they sacrificed others. And I'll confess, this does not sit very well with me. His violent reforms are but a brief mention in the text, but I can't brush over them. Josiah, our example of faithfulness, of humble confession and complete commitment to heart, soul, and mind strength kind of holiness and returning to the word of God. This Josiah, he becomes a man who forces his own ideas of religious practice on people of his own faith who just happen to worship God a little differently. This Josiah becomes someone who in his quest to follow God destroys people's lives. This Josiah becomes a brutal murderer. And I felt a little betrayed by the writer of 2 Kings when I read this piece of the story. The people of Judah may be afraid of losing their traditions, afraid of change, afraid from what they have experienced, and Judah was certainly hearing them and perhaps feeling it all too. This is valid. But was this the way forward? Murder and nationalism? Suppression of all that didn't fit his version of pure? I don't think so. And yet Josiah is still commended for being a righteous king. He is still said to have done what was right in the sight of the Lord, not turning to the right or the left, and this unsettles me. It unsettles me and it makes me afraid to live out what I've cut a covenant to do in my own life and in the life of this church, I'll confess. I wonder, what if I get it wrong? What if I return to God and then live it all out wrongly in ways that are hurtful even? I certainly haven't gotten it all right in terms of outreach here, you all know. Not all of my ideas or our ideas have been gems. They seemed right in the moment, but some fell through. Some programs, they haven't taken off. Sometimes we've struggled to connect in a society where people don't trust churches or pastors or churchgoers. We have failed at some things. But at the same time, we've taken some good risks and done some utterly beautiful things in this neighborhood too. It has looked different than expected, but that is always the way of it, isn't it? We've written notes of love to neighbors which started a movement of people all over the neighborhood writing notes of love to each other with support for each other after the election in 2016. We've connected with artists and created spaces for artists to connect with God and learn more about themselves as spiritual people created in God's creative image. We've been a safe space for people who aren't sure if they should trust churches. People stop in to talk and process faith all the time. People come here knowing this is a place that will listen and care. We become known as a place that cares for the liberation of people and who will take risks to be in partnership with those who are oppressed. This is wildly good work. This is beautiful work. We haven't always gotten it right, and sometimes we have failed. This is true. This learning how to live out God's invitation to us is difficult, and sometimes it does result in the death of some things. It's the natural course. Maybe the death of our belief systems, our traditions, our hierarchies, our assumptions about each other and about others, our safety. It is hard. But in this life, there are scary things and there are beautiful things. And they are not very often different. And that despite the risk of getting it wrong, we must still try. 
Josiah cut a covenant and then didn't live it out in the best ways or even in good ways. I'm uncomfortable with him being lifted high as an amazing king in the text. Perhaps. Perhaps this was an author rewriting some history to make people feel better about their past. But it doesn't stop the fact that our text still calls him to returning to the word of God and to action. And God doesn't desert Josiah in his great failings. And the same is true for us always. The answer to God's invitation is not to cut a covenant with God, explore what God might be calling us to, and then becoming insular, fearful, frozen, protecting what we have at all costs, being stingy with what we have been given, and focusing on ourselves. This is not the gospel. If Josiah teaches us anything by his missteps and violence, it is that we should cut a covenant, not to become insular and to focus on just ourselves, but to work for the good of others. Instead of forcing all to conform to us, perhaps we learn to understand others well and go to other spaces and places and humbly grow. Perhaps we welcome a shelter for LGBTQ teens or make spaces for the offices of such a shelter. Maybe we work to develop our buildings into housing where some of our members and staff could live and do work in the neighborhood through living in intentional community. When we listen to the Spirit... Who knows what might happen? And despite what we think, these things are scary and new. But despite what we think, we have nothing to fear. I've been reading many articles and talking with people around the neighborhood and country about the Christian church in the United States as a whole. And there is a consensus that what we've had up until now, it is dying. But that death is not the end by any means. Every 500 years in the history of the church, a huge reformation happens. And 502 years ago was the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther from which our own tradition comes. Many theologians say that we are due for another reformation. It is time. A dying, perhaps, of what we know to be church, Many believe this is already happening around the world. The church as a whole, as we know it, is in a stage of dying, perhaps. But as our whole story is resurrection, and as we are connected to the tree of Christ, we have no need to fear that we will be born into something new. It is for certain. Something new that serves others, something that is glorious, something that is Christ-centered. It is so very exciting. This is what gives me hope. Perhaps what will be resurrected will be a church that looks more like Jesus, which welcomes those on the edges, which gives up everything in order to love others, which serves the poor and cares for the earth, which is radical and abundant which doesn't even question the welcome of LGBTQ people, which does wild things like the church in the Netherlands, which created a 24-hour church service that has now been going on for months because the government isn't allowed to deport their members who are undocumented while they are in a worship service. So all these different pastors from around the city, they come together and they put on a 24-hour service to protect these friends. That is the church. It makes me a little teary, actually. It's so beautiful. (laughs) 
Maybe this new church might do wild things like the church in Hong Kong, which sacrifices personal safety and goes to the current protests happening in order to protect the young people protesting for their rights. They go to protect these young people from the brutality of the government police. They put themselves on the line. This is the gospel. This is the church. This is prophetic. This is coming back to the text. I personally can't wait to see what might happen in this resurrection of the church. I'm so excited for it to happen. And in the words of an amazing article I read recently, instead of wringing our hands in anxiety that fewer people want to call themselves Christians anymore, let's embrace the death of those expressions of faith that do more harm than good. And then, let's roll up our sleeves and begin the good work of resurrection. Instead of turning in to ensure our survival, let us turn out and partner with Jesus to repair the world. That is hope. So let us take a lesson from the leaves. Let us remember that we are perhaps the most beautiful, the most prophetic, the most gospel-focused, the most glorious, as we put to death the things in us that are not of God, and as we go about the dying of things that need to die in order to be resurrected. This is simply the natural order of things. May we listen to the Spirit of God who turns our leaves and submit like Jesus to the deaths that are needed so that good can come. May we listen to the ways that we can move forward with courage as a church community, with further love, mercy, and justice, so that we can be resurrected with hope and imagination into what God has for us and has had for us this whole time. This is exciting. This is the gospel. As we seek a new pastor, let us do this. Let us do this with imagination, because though pieces of the church may die, it will be resurrected into something better, because we have been connected to the tree, to Jesus, who has been alive this whole time. Amen.